We've been doing a series here all summer through uh, the letter that Peter wrote to the, these early believers that are kind of scattered all throughout Asia Minor. And so this morning we're going to continue, and we're actually turning a corner this morning. We're going to look at chapter 2, verse 11, and I'm going to talk a little bit about chapter 2, 11, all the way to chapter 3, verse 5, and we're going to look at uh, this, this output. This, what's going on here is that Peter has laid out the gospel and now what he's going to do is he's going to explain how the gospel should impact our lives. And so now we're turning toward kind of action, what it looks like to be a believer in the real world. So that's where we're headed this morning. I read an interesting article uh, this last week that my eldest daughter sent me, and I wondered why she had sent this to me. But uh, it's called The Weird Strategy Dr. Seuss Used to Create His Greatest Work. So it's written by James Clear. It goes back to 1960, two men, one of them being Theodore Geisel and his friend, made a wager. And the wager was, could you write something creative with 50 words or less in it? And of course, as you know, Dr. Seuss wrote, green eggs and ham. 50 words or less, 50 different words, that's it. 200 million copies sold. So James Clear's point in this little small article is that these limitations drive you to find better solutions. Do you ever think of that? That actually your limitations could potentially result in greater solutions if you only understand what your limitations are and apply some creativity, imagination, and pour yourself into that. And so he writes this article and talks about constraints that inspire creativity. He talked about they force you to get something done on time. If you're, if you're trying to get something done, constraints help accomplish that. And then he listed all these things, one of them being you can only eat whole, certain whole foods on your diet. And I thought, oh, that one relates. The size of your canvas may be really small. But you can be creative. And I've learned that in the last few months of actually having to be restricted in terms of my own diet to get gut health back. I've been limited, and I started with a very, very small, about 15 to 20 different foods that I could eat. And at one point I thought, this is the, you can't do this. You know, and I craved all the things that I couldn't eat. But after a while, you start to get really creative, and you stop craving the things you can't eat, and you start enjoying the things that you can't eat. It's amazing what happens when you have a limited amount of resources or a limited amount of something else. You're challenged in some way. Something good happens. I, was, I went down to the beach this morning and they were doing a pier, an avenue swim this morning, a half mile and a mile. So I had 30 minutes before the service starts. So I jumped in and swam a half mile. Got it done. It's amazing what you can do in 15 to 20 minutes. If you just set your mind to it, you just jump in and take advantage of the time that you have. That's the point of the article. Well, how does it apply this morning to our uh, teaching out of 1 Peter? Well, Peter recognizes the fact that these early believers had several challenges. And these challenges could easily be seen as distractions and discouragement to actually live out their faith. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 11, he begins... I urge you, brethren, as aliens and strangers, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. 
He goes on to say, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that the thing in which you, in which they slander you, your good deeds as they observe them will glorify God in the day of his visitation. So Peter begins by saying, there are limitations. There are these innate fleshly lusts that we all have, but if we If we recognize it not as a distraction or discouragement, but as a limitation that actually challenges us to live differently so the Gentiles see that we're managing these inward desires in a different way, something good's going to come out of it. And then in chapter 2, verse 13, he changes subjects. He moves from this idea of fleshly lusts in the world, which we all face, To now chapter 2, verse 13, submit, it says, therefore, to the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king, to one in authority, governors sent over you that have been put over you, because they're in their place for punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right, for such that is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of the foolish men. So Peter now looks at a whole other area, which is this area of institutions being under authority of some governing institution, which we might see as a distraction or discouragement. It's a limitation. But notice, in our submitting and in our honoring, in our doing good, we're actually silencing fools. Then he moves to another subject, and here we go. There's a third area. Third area is in verse 18. Servants, it says, be submissive to your masters with all respect. You see that? Not only to those who are good and respectful, but only those who are good and respectful, but those that are unreasonable. Now, here's another area that might be discouraging. And in an economic realm where there is hierarchy and authority, and you may be under some authority, Peter is saying, do good. Don't react. Don't respond. Do good. Even when you're being mistreated, something good will come out of that. And then one final area is in chapter 3, and it's in verse 1. It says, wives, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, meaning they don't know Christ, they don't share the same faith that you have, Peter's saying, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. You see that? Something good comes out of it. And in a situation where you may not like, you may be in a situation where you are faced with these desires that you want met. You're under an authority, whether it's a governing authority of some sort, and you don't appreciate it and you don't agree with it. And yet by honoring and submitting and by doing good, something good comes out of it. And the same in a work environment and the same in a marriage. And so Peter's point is this. I want to look at three things with you this morning. I want to look at what we're to do, why we're to do it, and how we do it. Because Peter's obviously identifying these four kind of venues, relational venues that we find ourselves in. Every single one of us live in a world where there are desires thrown at us. We feel desires How do we interact with the world around us? How do we interact interact with our government? How do we interact in a workplace? How do we interact in a a marriage relationship? 
these four relational venues. But before we do that, I want to just point out two things really quickly with you. I want to go back to chapter one because we have to have a foundation for our morality. You cannot act a certain way unless, of course, it has something has changed within you. Otherwise, you're going to be fighting against it. It's, you're going to be frustrated. Morality only works when there's been a transformation. And what we find is in 1 Peter, Peter begins by saying this. He says, you're this chosen people according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Obedience comes out of sanctification. You can't obey if you haven't been sanctified. There's no way. You don't have the ability to do that. Being sprinkled with his blood, may the grace and peace be yours in the fullest. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us, in verse 3, to be born again. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why does Peter begin there? Why does Peter begin the letter with this? It's like, it's, it, remember Nicodemus when he came to Jesus at night? And Jesus looked at Nicodemus and said, you need to be born again. This is a man who was morally upright, who had his, religious in his religion intact, and he was following a code of ethic. This is an upstanding man. And Jesus looks at him and says, you got to start over. Why would he do that? For the same reason that Peter is addressing these believers and saying that if you are going to obey Christ in all areas and show yourself as Christ-like, a transformation first must happen. It's the gospel. The gospel must be ingrained into you. It's not something you believe, it's something you live out. And there's a big difference. C.S. Lewis wrote a little small um, article on Christian behavior. And he talks about this idea of morality. And he says, it's like, it's, like, it's like telling ships how to steer to avoid collisions if in fact they are such crazy old tubs that they cannot be steered. He says... You cannot make good men by law. And without good men, you cannot have good society. We need morality inside the individual. Morality is not something on the outside. Morality is something on the inside because something has changed. And that something that has changed is this. You have been born again. It is the gospel. It is one of the most foundational truths of this church. This church rests on the transformation through the gospel of Jesus Christ for all believers. There's no other way to live. You'll be frustrated. And so we need to understand that. I was listening to a Tim Keller talk. He was in university and he was doing some lecture. And I believe it was a professor who got up at the very, very, very tail end of this and asked the last question, said, before you leave, could you explain what the gospel is? And he's looking at, he's like, oh, this, is, this is a softball. I just got lobbed a soft. This is so easy, but so profound to end this discussion, this lecture at a university about what is the gospel. And he simply said this, it is Christ in your place. That's what the gospel is. Christ has taken your place through the, res the death, the burial, and the resurrection. 
He's taken your place, your blame for your moral failures, expunged them so that they are no longer credited towards you. That's what the gospel is. He's taken your place so that now you can live a new life. And if it doesn't happen, if Christ doesn't take your your moral failures and he doesn't take them to the cross and take your place, then you will be driven by a moral cold the rest of your life that you will never be able to live up to. And so the gospel is this firm foundation that Scott McKnight in his commentary says, basically, ethics flow out of salvation. Our morality flows out of the gospel. It's not the other way around. You don't clean yourself up. You don't deserve what God gives you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work hard for it. It's been given to you, placed in you. You've been transformed. You're renewed. You have been born again, which means you are, you are a new person from the inside out. You have to see yourself that way if you're ever going to live a different life in the world. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you have to start there. Um, there's... Um, there's a few other things that McKnight says in his commentary, but it's, it's the person that has left the old life and now living a holy life on the basis of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It comes back to holiness. We've already touched on that, that we are to be holy, it says. Don't be conformed, but be holy. And being holy is being set apart. Well, the only way to be set apart is to be transformed first. Then you can be set apart. And start living set apart. Living a life that's set apart. That looks different. One particular author said that the church today is suffering from a credibility crisis. It's not the gospel. It's not that we're not evangelizing. It's we're not living the gospel. We have lost our credibility on the basis of not understanding how it has transformed us so that we can live a new life. Jacques Ellul is a, he was a professor of law in France and also a Christian philosopher, and he wrote a book called Presence of the Kingdom. And in it, he said that a Christian has no option but to live in the world. We don't have an option. There's no, there's no out button. There's no, I'm eject. We are here, and this is where God has put us. And then he second of all says, he says that we need to begin to live out kingdom living as signs. We're little postmarks in the world. And so what he's trying to do is help us understand that now that we have a transformation that's happened inside of us, we represent a different kingdom. It goes back to Peter saying, you're an alien, you're a stranger. What does he mean by that? You're different. You're different on the inside and the outside. Living in a world that doesn't share your values, totally, completely different. Completely set, completely different set of, of approaches and solutions and conclusions to how to deal with the world, how to deal with the government, how to deal in a workplace environment, how to live in a marriage. And you're challenged by all of those because you're a foreigner living in a land with different culture. And so, Alul basically says that the world needs a revolution. 
And we're these little revolutions because we're signs that there's a different kingdom coming. So we're these signs that that's who we are. When we go out of the world and live, you're a sign. You're a signpost. Something's different. So now live different. You've got to live different to be a sign. So let's jump into our text here. And let's understand what it means to be these aliens and strangers living in a culture that's very, very different than ourselves. And let's look at these areas of the world, the government, the work, and marriage. And the first thing that I want to do is what are we called to do? Well, it's very simple. We're to rise above the challenges and live Christ-like. Notice in each one of these categories there's a challenge. In the world, the challenge is how you deal with innate natural desires. What do you do with those natural desires? In, in, the, in the area of, of living under institutions, government institutions, authority, how do you respond? What are you to do? How are you supposed to live? There's a real challenge there. How do I honor and yet disagree? What do I do? How about in the work environment where you are mistreated and something's happened and you have to respond? How do I do that appropriately, but also honor and respect? Same thing in marriage. A marriage that, where there's, you, you're not sharing the same values, and yet there's respect and honor. See, there's a challenge in each one of these that you face, that I face, to live differently. So let's look at them. So let's look at the first one, which is the world. And actually, Peter, what he says here, he says, I want you to abstain from these fleshly lusts, and what he's basically saying is it's epithuma. It's, it's, it's a desire. But it's not just a simple desire, a God-given desire. It's an epi-desire. It's a hyper, it's a super desire. Do you see that? That's what he's talking about. It's not these natural given desires. John Piper, many years ago, wrote a book called Desiring God. And in that book, he basically said, we're all hedonists. A hedonist is simply someone who seeks pleasure. We all have a God-given desire to find pleasure. It's the way God designed us, to enjoy life, to enjoy the pleasures of this world, what God gives us. But when they become epi-pleasures, they get out of control. They get to a hyper level where they begin to consume and enslave as opposed to liberate, where it's no longer satisfying. I mean, you take health. You can, you can be a health person and, and enjoy that and, and enjoy the benefits of it. But you all know the kind of person that when they go into the bathroom and wash their hands and then they wash them again, then they get a towel and they wipe the towel down and they use the towel to get out of the bathroom. Right? You know what I'm talking about. We're calling them hypochondriacs. Right? Now, you may do that. And I don't mean any disrespect here because you're just watching the germs that are around you and trying to do the best job you can. But, but at some point, it no longer is about health. It's, it's consuming you. It's epi. It's epi-level desire. I mean, I was down at the beach with all these young families with all of our kids, and they were all playing, and the parents were all hanging out. And, and there was this one little baby and literally eating sand off the beach. Like it was like like it was a like tortillas or something like that. It was hilarious, and I'm like, the the parents have no idea what's going on here. Like, well, I guess I guess it builds immune system. I don't know what it's doing. You take any other area, take work. There's nothing wrong with being efficient and effective and hardworking, but you know where I'm going. Workaholism. 
is an epi desire where it's controlling you to a point where it's no longer satisfying. I mean, you could every year, romantic love, when it gets to a point where you, it becomes an idol in your life. And what John Piper says, and I think it's the answer that Peter is looking for, to abstain from the epi nature of God-given desires, he says, you need to seek a greater desire. It's not trying to run from these things. It's seeking God in the midst of them. It's finding your pleasure in God. He gets this from St. Augustine in Confessions. That until we find our greatest pleasure in God, we will never be satisfied. And then Augustine writes this, this whole book, Confessions, on the basis of his conversion, of how he was able to turn over his lusts in his life to God because he found a greater pleasure. He really did. But it can only happen at the level of encounter when you have a deep encounter. So that's the first one. The second one, you know, government. I mean, in the, in the Roman era, to submit yourself to the Lord's sake to every institution has got to be offensive. Because we're talking about Nero. And Nero was a pretty psycho kind of a guy. I mean, he burned part of his city and blamed it on Christians. Burned his own citizens. I mean, he was a cruel emperor. And yet Peter is saying, submit to that guy? To every governing authority? But notice what he does. The, the word submit, and he uses it in verse 13, uses it in verse 18, in the work environment, and also in the marriage. He uses the same word. The word means to literally come under the authority of, to be respectful of. It doesn't mean you can't disagree. It doesn't mean you cannot stand up against cruelty or anything that, that violates the will of God or that is dangerous. I mean, there's got to be some categories there. But overall, what is he saying? There's a submission and honoring even when you don't agree that does us good, that shows us different when we show a level of respect, even over a government that we didn't choose. And these Christians did not choose their government. There's a submission. But notice he moves now to, from submission, praise to those who do right. For in such the will of God is that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of fools. He's talking about doing right. What's he talking about? Scott McKnight, in his commentary, quotes uh, Bruce Winter, who did some early uh, first century research on how Christians reacted, how Christians lived in first century and what he discovered is these wealthy Christians actually became benefactors of their own communities. They built roadways, infrastructure. They, they gave money toward uh, buying up grain in order to uh, support the local economy. They did all sorts of things. And many of them were sent as uh, ambassadors for their city for goodwill. I mean, they, they jumped in where they could as benefactors of their own city. See, we can sit back and complain. Peter says, don't sit back and complain. Get, get up, stand up, and do something good. Get after it. I like a little book that was written many years ago by Denny Balesi down in Laguna Beach. He ran a church down there, and he handed out $20 bills in his church, several of them. I don't know how many exactly, but he handed out a lot of money. And he said, I want you to take this money and go be a benefactor in the world today. What are you going to do with 20 bucks? Really, seriously, is that really going to change anybody's life? Here's a $20 bill. It may, 
the story started coming back. He wrote a book called Kingdom Assignment. Ended up changing the direction of, the, of his ministry to help churches raise up people with a kingdom mentality of how to use their resources for the benefit of others. And the stories just started coming in and kept coming in. Well, I started with my 20 and, and people started throwing in 20s and it turned to thousands. It turned into hundreds of thousands of dollars. Never, never say that God is limited by your resources. If you think, well, a benefactor has to be wealthy, you're wrong. You have to change your mentality. The problem is not your money. The problem is the way you think about your money. The problem is not that. It is that you see yourself as a consumer, not as a steward of God's wealth. When you change your mentality that all that I own, is a, I'm a steward over it, to steward it for the betterment of the kingdom of God, it totally changes, radically changes what God can do in your life. But if you see yourself as a consumer and all I got is this and that's all the little, my limitations, my little limitations. I can't do anything. Well, sure you can. God can. See, does that make sense? So we change our perspective even in that environment. Third one, this is a tough one because in the first century, slavery was the basis of the economy. The economic system ran on slavery, but it was different than new world slavery. We just need to understand that. We need to understand right up, from, right up front that Peter is not condoning slavery and that slavery in the first century was very, very different than New World slavery where it's oppressive, dehumanizing, evil, wrong, sinful. And Peter doesn't come out and condemn this slavery because it's part of the economic system in which Christians have become part of. So how do we make the best of it? And fight for something good. It's the way you submit to an unjust master. See, in slavery in the first century, one-third of the population possibly slaves. And they were at all different levels. Some of them came into slavery and left slavery. Many of them became landowners. They, they developed their careers out of slavery. Some willfully came in. Some were born into it. Don't get me wrong. It's not a good thing. And Paul and Peter both address slavery several times in the New Testament, this whole idea. But the, but the way in which they do it is they honor Christ in the life of either the master or the slave and challenge them to stand above their circumstances. And that's where it's difficult. How do you stand above, rise above the challenges of your circumstances? And so in this first century world, the best way, the most relevant environment that we can talk about is a workplace environment, an economic system where people work and they work for one another or they work for somebody and it's really challenging. It's super difficult to be in that. I remember being in that situation and I was so frustrated once and I remember my boss's boss came to me and said, look, can I have a conversation with you? You have to learn how to manage up and manage down. It's not just about managing people under you. It's how to manage people above you. In other words, respect them, honor them. And when you do that, you will elevate your team and you will benefit and Christ will be glorified. See, that's what Peter is saying. This is not easy. This is transformational, radical kind of living. That is not easy. Yes, there are most certainly those times and places 
where we have to speak out. I have a friend that was asked to lie and, uh, for his boss. And he said, I'm not going to do it. He thought, you know, my, my job's on the line. I could get fired. But what happened was a supervisor heard of this, called him up, listened to his story, and that was the beginning of the elevating role that he played. He just continued to climb in this company as a result of his integrity, of doing what was right, of honoring, respecting, but also doing what was right. And then in the final area is marriage. And Bill's going to come in next week and talk about these last two. He's going to talk about slavery. He's going to talk about marriage in more detail and really look at it. But this whole idea of being submissive is difficult for us. How do we do that? To win over. The goal, the objective is to win a spouse, to rebuild the marriage on the basis of the love, for, love of Christ. I mean, we're doing a little marriage seminar at the Watts house on Monday nights and we've invited the church to come and join us and several couples have came last Monday and we're going to be meeting again this Monday and we're just talking about marriage and talking about the struggles and the challenges and, and, and there's a lot of them and yet when we recognize how to honor our spouses not fight against them something good comes out of that and that's what we see in every one of these categories so, rise above the temptations of the epi-lusts. Honor a government institution you don't necessarily agree with. Do not revile a boss who mistreats you. Show respect even to a non-believing spouse to win them to Christ. Why do we do this? Chapter 2, verse 12. It's for the glory of God. Do you see that? In chapter 2, verse 12, it says that when you do that, when you live a lifestyle that is above the standard. Everybody else is giving into their lusts, just living them out. And you're looking at them and evaluating them, and you're holding them in check. You're applying James chapter 1, 13 to 15, that when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. I'm going to watch that lust. I don't want that lust to be conceived in me and become an overwhelming consumption. Guess what happens? I bring glory to God in the day of visitation. Gentiles will see that. It's about the glory of God. It's elevating the glory of God, the beauty, the majesty, the power of God in the world. This is, this is Exodus language, by the way. This goes back to Exodus. I read Exodus this summer. It's a beautiful story of the Hebrew people living in slavery 400 years and then God says, it's time to break the bonds of slavery. And it's, it, you read it. It's a long process. Pharaoh plays this role of you can go. No, you can't go. You can go. You're free. You're not free. And finally, he, it, he gets beaten down so far that he, he finally says, go, get out of here. But then he chases after them. And then he, that's the end of him. But it's a story of getting free from the bondage. And then now they're in the desert and they start complaining because they don't have their needs met. And God begins to shower them with their needs, water and food. And then he says, my presence will be upon you and you will be my kingdom of priests. 
you will be a royal nation, Exodus 19, 34. It's exactly what 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says. You are these people, and when you act like a chosen race, when you act like a royal priesthood, when you are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, they will see it. God's glory will be seen through your life. That's what happens. That's why in Exodus 19, he called them to that, to be a people that brings glory to God through God's presence. So that's why we do it. It's not for us, so that God might get the glory. How do we do it? Well, this, this is Isaiah language. Look at chapter 2, and look at this in verse 21. You've been called for this purpose since Christ has suffered for you, leaving you an example. How do we do it? Follow Christ's example. What's Christ's example? Well, you know his, how to follow him in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Comes out of Isaiah chapter 53. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. See, this, this is in Isaiah 53. It's the arm of God, the mighty, powerful arm of God coming to rescue his people through the Savior. And in walks the Savior, the Messiah. And who is he? He's battered. He's broken down. He's been slandered. He's been oppressed. He's been beaten upon in Isaiah 53. I can imagine the Jewish people going, the Israelites going, that's our Messiah? That's the picture you want us to follow? He's going to lead us out of this oppression? Yes, that's the kind of person that's going to do it. Because notice what he does. He receives the slander. He receives all of the poor treatment, all the reviling. He receives it upon himself. And when he does that, he bears it up. And he breaks it. It's gone. And I think why Peter tells us to be just like Jesus is that when we do that, we form a solidarity with the suffering of Jesus and we bear the brutal slander. I've been slandered before. I know what it's like. I was unjustly fired once in a church and... It was a horrible experience. And you know, my first response was, I'm just not going to leave. Why? Well, they can't make me leave. I'm just going to keep showing up for work. And then I thought about it and said, that's really ridiculous. What am I going to do here? I'm just going to divide this church and it's going to result in a whole big issue. And, but, but I'm right and they're wrong. So they can't do this. So I'm not leaving. And then I finally realized, no, I need to step out. And so they called me together, leaders called me together, and they wanted to basically justify their decisions, so they raised these accusations against me, and I brought two friends with me, two close confidants. You need somebody, because you can't bear this alone. I could not have gone through that meeting without these two men. And they were right there on both sides of me, as I heard accusations that were totally untrue, completely unfounded. Now, I'm not saying that I wasn't that I was a perfect employee. But I'm most certainly saying I don't acknowledge the fact that those accusations are true. It was slander. And I didn't respond. And they said, would you like to have another meeting where you're able to respond to that? And I said, no, thank you. It was the best decision I ever made. As hard as it was for me to go through that, 
What happened inside of me was that I formed a solidarity with a suffering Christ and bore the brunt of it because of Jesus. See, I, I didn't do it. Jesus did. So it wasn't me. But I followed the example of Christ in that situation. So here we are this morning, ready to take communion and form a solidarity with Jesus in his suffering in all these different areas. So I want to ask you and challenge you. This is not passive non-resistance. Jesus is not some passive, non-resistant kind of person that basically took the brunt of it and, and just didn't do anything. He went to the cross with strength. This is a Jesus who went into the temple and cleansed the temple by responding to sin. When it was wrong, it was wrong, and he spoke, he spoke out against it. But he did it in a way that honored God. He knew how to choose his battles. And so... My prayer and concern for us is that we would know the same and evaluate those areas of our lives and bring those before the Lord. So let's pray together. So Father, as we go to the table this morning, we're going to have a chance to, um, to think of the fact that you were reviled, but you did not revile in return. You were slandered. You were accused. You were beaten upon, spit upon, totally unjustified. And you stood there, not some weak, pining person that couldn't stand up for himself, but with all the strength, because if you knew who you were, Jesus, you took it upon yourself. May we follow your example, Jesus, in our lives. And may the church survive this credibility crisis by us rising up against the challenges and living like a, like a Christian. Amen.